Let's open God's Word together to Galatians chapter 5, the epistle of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit to the churches in Galatia. Chapter 5, we'll read the first 23 verses of the chapter. Our text will be verses 13 through 15. Galatians 5, 1 through 23. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such There is no law. To that point we read the holy and inspired word of God. Our text is verses 13 through 15. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, 
Take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Beloved of God, the Holy Spirit had used the Apostle Paul to plant a number of churches in the region of Galatia when Paul was on his first missionary journey. Not that long, however, after Paul returned home from that first missionary journey, some men came from Judah, who we now call Judaizers, who troubled the churches in Galatia. They told these congregations that the gospel Paul preached to them of justification by faith alone was in fact not the gospel at all, and that Paul wasn't even a proper apostle. However, it was these Judaizers who were the ones with theological problems. In the main, their problems were two. First, these Judaizers believed that the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were still in literal effect after the coming of Jesus Christ. And second, they taught that obedience to those laws as well as the moral law, was part of the way you earned your status of righteous and son of God in God's sight. Acts 15, verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, writes this epistle with some fire in his pen to defend his apostolic authority, and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. The epistle divides very clearly into three parts, each part containing two chapters each. The first part is chapters 1 and 2, where Paul defends his apostleship. The second part is chapters 3 and 4, where with eight very distinct arguments, the Apostle Paul defends the gospel of justification by faith alone. And then the third part is chapters 5 and 6. Our text is a part of that. Where the Apostle makes applications of everything he has written before. The first of those applications we read tonight at the beginning of chapter 5. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. The gospel of justification by faith alone grants liberty to God's people, a certain liberty from the bondage of the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, and a liberty from having to be bound by the requirement to earn our sonship before God by our works. The gospel is not do this and live, but it's live for this has been done. Stand firm in that truth, that gospel that is the center of the truths of God. Don't move from it, says the Apostle Paul. The threat of works righteousness is real. Conscious of how real that threat is, he repeats it at the beginning of our text for tonight, even though that's not the thrust of the passage. Brethren, You have been called unto liberty. The irresistible call of a sovereign God has 
brought you out of bondage and into this sphere of liberty before God. It's God's gift to you, this liberty. Stand fast in it. Defend it. Keep it. But then he presses forward. to defend that gospel from another error. And he does that by asking a question. He makes it personal. Now church, what are you going to do with this liberty? Because there is another ditch where you are tempted to use this liberty in the service of the flesh. Instead, use it to serve one another by love. The proper use of liberty is the theme of the sermon tonight. We'll notice first how not to use it, second, how to use it, and third, the wonderful result of the proper use of it. The proper use of liberty, how not to use it, how to use it, and the wonderful result. It's something you might say to your teenage child, isn't it? Perhaps after they get their driver's license, purchase their first car, about to go off into the world with a little more freedom than they've had before, As a parent, you might sit them down and have a little talk with them first and say, you know, my son, my daughter, this is a different stage of life. And you have a certain liberty at this stage of life. You're no longer a small child in our home. When you were a child, you had all kinds of rules. You could hardly move without confronting a rule or a rule confronting you. Don't touch that. Don't do that. All the time when you were a child. And now you've come to a certain maturity in your life and a lot of those rules for you have fallen away. You have a certain liberty at this stage of your life. You might say to them this too. And I want to tell you this now that you have your driver's license, you have keys, you can go out there a little bit. I want you to know that I love you. And I will always love you. You're my child. You don't have to fear that I will abandon you as your parent. You may go out in the liberty of knowing that you don't need to earn my love for you by what you do. My love is there for you. Then you might add this too. Now, my child, before you go out, let me ask you this too. What are you going to do with this liberty? How are you going to handle it? You see, Paul has told the New Testament church in this epistle already, back in chapter 4, that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the church 
has come to a new stage of life, you might say. In the Old Testament, she was like a child. And so she had all of these rules. She had the civil and ceremonial laws, just like a child has all kinds of rules in her parents' house. But now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, the church has been brought into a certain maturity. She's growing up in the New Testament, and that's why these civil and ceremonial laws fall away. You have a little bit of liberty now in the New Testament church of Christ. In addition, the Apostle Paul has told the church in this epistle that her relationship with God is not founded on the basis of her own doing, but the work of Christ is imputed to her. And thus, she does not need to earn God's love by her working and doing. Her sonship has been earned already. You're free from the bondage of having to earn my love. And now the apostle adds this. Now, church, what are you going to do with that liberty? How are you going to use it? Because he knows, just like for that teenager, there is a temptation to misuse that liberty. So there is for God's church. There's a temptation, the apostle says, that the church would use her liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Verse 13. The flesh there is not a reference to the physical body, of course. The reference is to the old man of sin what we are by nature. Verse 17, the Apostle says that the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit against the flesh, that these are contrary one to another. What's contrary to the Holy Spirit in us? It's not our body, our our physical flesh, but it's the nature, the old man of sin. Our nature and the desires that rise up out of it, the notions that well up from that old man of sin. That's the flesh. Don't use your liberty as an occasion for that flesh to take hold of you. That word occasion is actually a military term. It refers to a base of operations from which to launch an attack. If one nation is going to try to take over another nation, first thing they try to get is a, a piece of land or a part that can be a base, a launching pad from which they can send out their planes and their tanks and their troops to take over the territory of that nation. Why did Russia annex the Crimean Peninsula in 2014? Well, we learn now that they did that in part to use it as a kind of base of operations, a launching pad from which they could take over the rest of Ukraine. Well, the apostle is saying that the flesh, the old man that remains within you, wants to use your liberty in Jesus Christ that way. It wants to use your liberty as a launching pad, an occasion, a base of operations from which it will be able to attack and overtake territory 
in your life. And you know exactly what he's talking about, don't you? And so do I. You've heard this temptation from the whisperings of Satan himself, from your own old man that is within you, and so have I. You're free. Go ahead. Do it. Go for it. What's holding you back? He's not going to send you to hell for it. He told you already. He said that your works are not the ground of your standing before Him. That you're His. You're a believer, aren't you? You believe in this Christ for the saving of your soul. You trust in Him alone for righteousness. His righteousness imputed to you as though it were your own righteousness. Well, that means you're elect. It's only the elect that believe with a true and living faith. And if you believe with a true and living faith, then you're elect. And election is unchangeable. You can't go from election to reprobation. So you're elect. And you will always be elect. So go for it. You're secure. Besides that, he's the one who told you you're secure. What does he expect if he's going to tell you you're secure? You're free. Go for it. And right there. That's how it wants to use our flesh. Wants to use our liberty in Christ as a base from which it can take over portions of our life for sin. Or this way. Look, you're a New Testament Christian. You're free from all of the demands of those Old Testament restrictions. Touch not, taste not, handle not. God deals with His church now in the New Testament more as an adult child. And that means you, you can make your own decisions. You're, you're an adult in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So come on now. Go ahead and drink. You're free, you're free to do it. It's your liberty in Jesus Christ. You're not bound. Take a drink. And why not another? And another. Just one more. All right, maybe five. You can have that Twinkie. You're free. You're not bound by 
dietary restrictions like the Old Testament saints where all those laws fall away. Go ahead, eat it. You make your own decisions. You're an adult in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Eat that Twinkie. And another. Why not another? And who says to you that you can't have a TV, that you you can't have the internet? You're you're free in Jesus Christ. You have liberty. What are you, a legalist? You're not a legalist. You're not going to fall for that. You have freedom in Jesus Christ. You're not bound by all of these Old Testament requirements. You can make your own decisions here. And what about the Lord's Day? Sure, in the Old Testament, they had a lot of restrictions. You couldn't pick up sticks in the Old Testament on the, on the Sabbath day. You had to be careful about how many steps you took, even perhaps. But you're free from all of that now. So, and you see, from the launching pad of that real liberty, that's true, all of that's true. But your flesh wants to use, and my flesh wants to use, that real, God-given, spirit-gifted liberty as an occasion, a launching pad from which it might take over portions of your life. So that the drink that is your God-given right in your Christian liberty becomes now the license of drunkenness. So that the Twinkie of, of true gospel freedom, you may eat a Twinkie if you want to eat a Twinkie, it wants to make for you the enslavement of gluttony. And the internet and the TV of true gospel freedom He wants to make for you the license of immorality and spiritual danger to your life and to your marriage. And the true God-given New Testament liberty and Sabbath observance it wants to make into the license of doing your pleasure on my holy day, saith the Lord. There's a temptation. And our liberty becomes this base of operations from which it brings us into a new kind of slavery. Not a slavery to works righteousness. Not a slavery now to Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, but a slavery to the bondage and enslavement of sin of the flesh. And the apostle warns, you're free. You're free, but understand now the temptation that's going to come with that and don't use your freedom as an occasion to the flesh. And the Apostle Peter echoes the same thing. Free, only not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, for a cover for evil, for depravity in your life. And the Apostle Paul goes on here to give all kinds of of examples of sins that the flesh wants to conquer your life with from the launching pad of this liberty, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, 
envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. But what's most interesting now in our text is that the first one that he gives is biting and devouring one another in the body of Christ. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Don't don't use your liberty as an occasion for fleshly pride to rise up within you and to take you over so that you begin to bite and to devour each other in the congregation of Jesus Christ. Behaving with one another like vicious animals. It's the progression of the hunter and the prey. Bite, devour, consume. The lion first bites that antelope and gets it around its neck, drags it down, and then it starts to devour it, rips parts of its flesh off and eats it until finally, thirdly, it's consumed the whole thing. Only here in the apostle's mind, it's not a lion after an antelope, but it's two lions going at each other. And they bite and devour one another until they consume each other and there's nothing left. And Paul has seen this in the church. Sadly, probably every generation since has seen it to some extent in the church. And the apostle is concerned. He's worried that with all of this controversy going on in Galatia, that this is what would happen. They would start to bite and devour each other and consume it. And the two sides would eat each other into the destruction of the body itself. What's happened in our denomination and this splinter that has broken off? Oh, it has happened before, beloved. Paul himself saw it. And sadly, it has been a repeated occurrence in the history of the church. It can happen over something as simple as a disagreement over the color of the carpet. Strong personalities want to get what they want to get. Or it can happen over something as serious as false doctrine in the church. But even if sometimes disagreements and debates and even splits and splinters and all of that has to happen for the sake of truth and right every time, it's a sad thing. It's a reminder that we are the church militant. We are on earth. We are on the way. We are pilgrims. We're not yet the church glorified. But it ought to be a reminder of this too. That no matter what the issue, beloved, whether it's the color of the carpet or errant doctrine, 
or something else in between. The manner matters. Lest the whole church become riled up and bite and devour each other until the whole thing is consumed in wicked fighting and bickering. As emotions run high, as tempers flare, and the flesh rises up and takes over to the destruction of a portion of the body of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean give up conviction, but it means manner matters. Calvin says, how unhappy, how mad it is that we who are members of the same body should voluntarily conspire together for our own mutual destruction, biting and devouring and consuming each other. And every church, every congregation has to be careful that it does not happen in her midst. Because one thing can set it off. And there's biting and biting and devouring and consuming. Don't let it destroy the church of Christ. But now you see the connection, do you not? Between this liberty is an occasion for the flesh that Paul is warning against and this particular example of that, biting and devouring each other. You're free in Jesus Christ justified for nothing in yourself. You're set in the kingdom of God as a son of God, a prophet, priest, and king. And you are right and and free to pursue what you think is right and good in the kingdom of Christ as part of your liberty. But understand that there's an occasion there for the flesh to come along and say in pride, but I'm right. And because I'm right, That means everything else falls away and I have the right to bite you and to bite you and to devour you in the kingdom of Christ in order to get what I am after. And right there, liberty has become an occasion for that flesh to rise up and to overtake me in my life. And instead of pursuing that thing, good and right though it might be, instead of pursuing it God's way, so that if it comes to me, I know God has given this to me as a gift. I instead pursue it my way. However I want. And I will get it. Even if it means biting, and devouring, and consuming, and it's flesh. It's not spirit. It's flesh. It's pride. But flesh is essentially me-centered, and we can become so me-centered without even realizing it, pursuing even good things and right things, but doing it in the wrong way, pursuing it in the flesh. Don't I have the right in this situation? Don't I have the power? Shouldn't I be controlling this situation? I know more than that person. I have the experience here after all. 
since I do. I'm not going to use humble service to the kingdom in the way that God has set for me. But I'll chew my way to get it. And it's me, 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 and I try to use everyone else around me to build the kingdom of me rather than serving those around me to build the kingdom of Christ. And it sets off a firestorm of biting and devouring and consuming. Instead, says the Apostle, by love, serve one another. You see, there's a vacuum of power, you might say, that's left by this freedom, this liberty, so that there is this launching pad, an occasion for control of aspects of the life. What is going to fill it? The flesh, by which I serve myself in a hundred thousand different ways, or love by which I serve others. If someone inherits a billion dollars, there's a certain freedom that comes from that, a certain liberty. I don't have to earn my living anymore. My living has been given to me as a gift right up front. There's a liberty from all the other things I had to do that were like weights holding me down in my life. But now what are you going to do with that? Serve yourself with that or serve others? This is the position we are in spiritually, the apostle is saying, and by love serve one another. Love is the seeking of the good of the other. In an attempt to form or further a bond, a fellowship with the other. By that love, serve one another. It's not the regular word for serve in the New Testament. But it's actually the word for slave. By love, enslave yourself to one another. I think after studying this passage, I won't ever look at a church directory the same again. And I wonder how it would affect us if we went home tonight and took the church directory out of the door and took a pen and wrote Galatians 5.13 on the cover of that directory and wrote out the verse and then under that wrote this in these pages between these two covers. For those whom I willingly enslave myself. To serve by love. And they to me.
so that my time and talents and treasure are employed by God to their benefit. Really? These people? Don't you have anybody better for me to serve, God? Did Christ give His life for them, beloved? And they are part of the body that is the excellent of earth. And in them is my delight. But you don't understand, I don't, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, As every man hath received a gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Everyone, but I don't know what to do. Luther gives a list of how we might serve one another by love, and it's astoundingly common. Quote, teaching the erring, comforting the afflicted, encouraging the weak, helping the neighbor in whatever way one can, bearing with rude manners and impoliteness, putting up with annoyances, labors, and the ingratitude and contempt of men, treating one's parents with respect, being patient in the home with a cranky spouse and an unmanageable family, and the like, end quote. Kinds of things, Luther says, the whole world is not able to comprehend the excellency and the worthiness of. Can you see the excellency and the worthiness of it? Really? That's it? There must be something greater for me to do. This is what I'm supposed to do with my liberty in Jesus Christ. By love, serve one another. In home, family, in church, in the body of Christ, Catholic, neighbors. He will use it, beloved. Maybe he'll use our simple work in this way, in marvelous ways in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He does sometimes. Maybe not. But he will use it. And he will use it in ways that are excellent and glorious and that to him are the most marvelous things that ever occur on his green earth. But I thought... Liberty means freedom to do whatever I want to do. By love, enslave yourselves to one another. That's freedom in the definition of God. It's freedom to be free of off of myself and working for the kingdom of me. It's freedom to be free to serve others and to be working in the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is bigger than anything in my puny little life 
and that lasts forever. So that instead of saying me, 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 and and seeking to grab a hold of everyone around me in the service of myself and my kingdom, I serve those around me in the building of his kingdom. And might it even be, beloved, that because the Apostle Paul puts these two things as opposites, using liberty as an occasion to the flesh, and by love serving one another, might it even be that the giving of myself to others in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is part of how I gain freedom from the slavery of sins of the flesh. But how, Paul, do you know for sure that this is what God wants with my liberty in Jesus Christ? The answer that the Apostle Paul gives to that question in the text is vitally important, beloved. Because his answer to that that question is, because the law of God says so. Verse 14, For because all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Summarizing there, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So that the apostle is saying, though you are free from the literal application of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, and though you are free, you have liberty from having to work to earn the favor of God in your life. That doesn't mean there's no law in your life anymore. God's moral law still stands. It's still in effect. And it has something to say to you. Just like with that teenage child with whom you sit down before he walks out that door with his new car keys. Though you've said all those things about the liberty that that teenager has now in his life, you ask, what are you going to do with your liberty? And remember, There's still law in your life, child. And though I love you, regardless of what you do, you'll always be my child and nothing but my child. You understand that if you will go against that law, there's there's going to be consequences and my love for you will be expressed in chastisement because I love you and I want to restore you to the right path. So too us as children of God. Paul is teaching here what we now call the third use of the law. The first use is to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ. The second is to give some sense of what laws ought to be made for civil life. The third use is to guide us in the life of gratitude. It's guidance for our liberty. But understand, it's a totally different experience of God's law. If I may put it this way, before, the law of God was like a terrible thundercloud. Thundering 
calling down upon us saying, do this and live. Don't do this and die. And, and lightning bolts are coming down. And if you step outside of this law, one of those bolts will kill you. In the language of the Apostle Paul, we're not under the law that way anymore. The law doesn't condemn us to death any longer in Jesus Christ. But now, if you want to put it this way, the law is under us. It's like a road for the car of our life that guides our life of liberty, our life of gratitude. Go off that road and He'll chasten us in love to restore us. But this moral law now guides our love. You see, what comes with this liberty is is love. Love of gratitude. To be delivered from the guilt of my sin, to be told I am His Son and I never will be anything else. There's love for Him, gratitude that wells up in the child of God who hears that. There has to be some direction for that love. It can't just spray everywhere. It has to go somewhere and this moral law becomes the guide. Here's how you live before my face in love for me. Let the river of your life run along this riverbed. Let the car of your life move upon this road. Don't let the flesh fill this vacuum that liberty leaves so that it launches itself upon your life, enslaving you to the flesh. But love arise from the gospel of this liberty and express itself a convicted life that will honor this law and serve God and serve each other. Because all that law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself, as the apostle quotes from the summary of the law given in Leviticus 19, verse 18. But why doesn't he say all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this? Love your God. Why doesn't he use the summary of the first table of the law? Why does he use the summary of the second table of the law? Well, Paul knows, as these Galatians know, as you know, that even the second table of the law is to be obeyed in love for Jehovah God. But practically, a large part of the way that that love for God comes to expression is in our love for one another. And that's Paul's concern now with the church of Galatia. It's the same as John in 1 John 4 verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? The vital test of our love for God is in our love for one another. It has to strike us how carefully the apostle, inspired as he is, navigates between the deadly reef of works righteousness on the one side and the deadly reef of antinomianism on the other side. He will abide neither one And so after four chapters in this epistle of teaching the church of her liberty from the law in Jesus Christ, saying things like, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. 
The law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. We had to be redeemed out from under the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith that is in Christ. And yet now in this chapter, he brings the law back into play. In its Ten Commandments. And four chapters of freeing us from slavery. We were in bondage. Do you desire again to be in bondage? Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In Christ you are no more servants in bondage, but you are sons. And yet now he brings back this idea of slavery. By love, enslave yourselves to each other. And yet that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Every single child of God here understands it perfectly. We're set free from the law as condemnation in order to obey as the perfect law of liberty. It commands us yet. The must of that law remains yet to the point where for Paul, even the love may be commanded. It's not just serve one another, but by love, serve one another. He commands even the love. There's a kind of antinomianism that says, yes, the law still has something to say in the Christian life, but it may never command you. It never says you must do this or must do that. If it says that, then you're no longer really free. You're bound The apostle didn't think that way. If it says you must or to hell with you, the apostle would have a problem with that. That's bondage. But not you must. For your father has freed you, adopted you to be his son. Ever will you be his son. Now love him and serve him this way. By loving and serving each other. What a wise and a good father to give some direction to our liberty. To show us, to tell us what pleases him with the use of our liberty. And a good father who gives us the blessed prospect that in this liberty we fulfill the law and please Him to His glory. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. It's fulfilled in us. Paul said it in Romans 8 too. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. To be sure, Christ fulfills the law. I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And He did. He filled it up with perfect obedience in love for God, in love for us. But imputing His righteousness to us and imparting His righteousness to us in His wake, He empowers us. 
to in some small way fulfill that law behind Him and in His power, never to the satisfying of God's justice, never in perfection, always with the stain of sin shading even our best works and covered in the blood of Christ, but there is something coming out of us in our liberty that meets to some degree the requirement of the law when it couldn't before. Before we did everything in fear. And the law says love. Do all this in love. But now in this liberty we love Him and love one another. In the blood of Christ we fulfill something of this law. No, I'm pleasing my Father in this. And He delights in this. A wonderful result as is this. That as God works this in us, beloved, He's making us more like our Savior. Who in His liberty, in His freedom, made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and that word is a slave, same word as in our text, was made in the likeness of men. He enslaved Himself to you and to me, giving Himself to the cross in love for God and for us. And we freed by this Christ and the power of His ongoing work in our life. We, sons of God, use this liberty to love and serve one another like it was joy for Him to do so, for the joy that was set before me. May it be joy for you to do so too, and me. That's a God-glorifying life. That's a rich life. It's a beautiful life. And it's the proper use of our liberty. Amen. Father, add Thy blessing to the proclamation of Thy Word for the strengthening of us, Thy people. In Jesus' name, Amen.